But if you've got a business that's profitable, got a unique edge, playing in a space that doesn't need operational leverage or that, to be a, basically the dominant player, then those businesses will get funded easily. Hey, this is Jesse here with episode 97 of the Betting Startups podcast, which is our quarterly investor vibe check, where we chat with three industry investors to get their perspective on the landscape from their side of the table. For the Q4 episode, we welcome Jeffrey Haas, Quinton Singleton, and Tom Waterhouse. The discussion reflects back on a Q4 that saw more funding announcements, but also saw some evidence of early stage companies struggling. They also discussed the importance of implementing sound governance at the early stage, what areas they're looking at investing in this year, and their top book recommendations for founders' reading lists. This was another can't-miss episode that I hope you enjoy as much as I did. But before we get started, I'm pumped to share that the Betting Startups podcast officially welcomes Optimove as the new presenting sponsor of the podcast for 2024. Optimove is the number one CRM marketing solution for the iGaming market with four out of the top five U.S. operators personalizing their player experiences with Optimove. If you're traveling to London in a few weeks for ice, visit Optimove at the show, mention you listened to this episode, and get an Amazon gift card courtesy of Optimove, the number one CRM marketing solution for the iGaming market. All right, we are back with episode 97 of the Betting Startups podcast. And while all the episodes are special, this one's a little bit extra special as it happens to be our quarterly investor vibe check episode, where we welcome a panel of industry investors to share some perspective from their side of the table. In this one, we're going to look back on a few topics that emerged from Q4 in 2023. And of course, being that we're now at the start of 2024, we'll also look ahead at what this year might bring. I'm joined once again by a panel of successful and highly respected industry investors who, if I'm not mistaken, are all on different continents today. So thanks, guys, for joining. Happy New Year to you all. Not sure if you guys watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, but Larry David's adamant that you can only say Happy New Year until the end of the first week of the New Year. So this will officially be my last time saying it on the podcast. Two out of the three of us are here. If our third guest happens to join midway, we will let him in now. But let's just start with a quick round of introductions for those that are here. We'll go alphabetically by first name. So Jeffrey, if we could start with you, please, to tee us off. That'd be awesome. Um, if you could just talk quickly about your background in the industry, maybe share a bit of detail about your investment profile and areas of focus. And if you want, you could plug any uh, investments that might be in your portfolio. Please get us started, Jeffrey. Thanks, Jesse. I am a fellow Canadian. I grew up in Toronto, went to school at UBC, so very close to you out in Victoria, and now live in Copenhagen in Denmark. I've been in gaming for most of my life. I grew up playing poker in Toronto because clearly wasn't cool enough to date the cute girls. And, you know, that poker education carried me pretty far. First online betting or online wagering startup was poker startup in Toronto in 2003 called Check and Raise Poker, which was a fantastic experience in learning how to fail slowly. Went from there to Stockholm, where I worked for B2B and B2C online poker business called On Game Network. We ran PokerRoom.com and a global uh, B2B network of fantastic poker sites. Funny enough, that was rolled up into an entity that Quinton ended up buying some years later. But OnGame was bought by Bwin, got along great with those guys, but had an opportunity to join PokerStars. So I was there for seven years, director of biz dev for Asia Pacific, launched the Asia Pacific Poker Tour, moved to London, ran a lot, well, all of the global live gaming operations for PokerStars for some years, got back into product. Did a lot of really cool things around poker for years. And then in 2015, ended up landing at uh, DraftKings. 
and I was hired as the chief international officer responsible for international diversification. And so we launched in the UK, across Europe from a Malta license and in Australia. But in 2017, we realized that in order for DFS to make sense in uh, the UK market in particular, we needed to have cross-sell to sports book. So we started uh, looking for a sports book, uh, wagering providers, which, you know, is a story in and of itself. And then the CEO of DraftKings made a huge bet that sports betting would be legalized in America. So in 2017, I moved almost full-time into helping build out our online gaming business, which was sports wagering and then online casino and then retail sports book and, you know, help build teams and that business up. It was great. Spent seven years with DraftKings. Uh, towards the end of my tenure there, I was seconded to drive by DraftKings, which was a VC fund and got to, you know, spend other people's money investing in some great startups. Uh, learned a lot working with Meredith McFerrin, who's probably the smartest woman in sports investment today. And uh, the rest of that team really enjoyed the VC world. So after I finished up with DraftKings, I ended up connecting with some of the guys from Better Collective, who were two of the four general partners for a Dreamcraft VC out of Copenhagen. I became a limited partner and a venture partner there, uh, helped with uh, due diligence around any gaming, fintech, and crypto investments, and have deployed a lot of capital for uh, many other people, including myself. I would say that the investments I'm most excited about today, one is Low6, which is a sports gamification platform that is growing by leaps and bounds, and then a business out of Australia called Forever Network, which is a basketball media company that is growing rapidly. I think they're just closing an investment round right now. If anybody's interested in investing into that company, please reach out directly or to the guys at Forever Network. Uh, and then I'm also an advisor and small equity holder in Sparkit out of uh, Las Vegas. And they're also going to be an investment around next year. So I apologize if that was a little long, but full context. Thanks, Jeffrey. Uh, alphabetically takes us to Quinton next. And just to note for those listening, I noted at the outset here, we had two of our three guests. In the meantime, our third guest has arrived. I'm happy to see you, Tom. Welcome. Quinton, a quick round of introductions, and then we'll go over to Tom uh, on the back of yours. Thanks, Jesse. I, I thought it was great, Jeff. A great introduction. And the on-game reference is interesting. On the M&A side, when I was at the company, I was in overseeing the divesture of on-game after we had bought it a couple of years before that. So, you know, we, we constantly see assets, companies move all around at a fairly rapid pace. And I think I even read one about Bluebet, a good Australian company looking at strategic deals right now as well. So uh, a little bit of my background though, uh, my family's been in the gaming industry for probably a couple generations now, starting way back in the old butterfly collar land-based casino days. So as I kind of grew up into the industry myself, I started off in accounting and worked with uh, one of the big four. After that, I decided to punish myself and go back to law school. So I then did corporate securities, M&A, and one of the things that we had did back then as a firm is we launched this practice, which is now fairly widespread called legal opinions. And so if you've done anything in the VC or startup space nowadays, there's this whole process that I think we started that about eight, eight or nine years ago, which came out of course, as a part of this law called UEGA. We were heavily involved with some of the biggest daily fantasy sports companies in their very early days, helping them figure out how to move in and out of jurisdictions. And so that was a very interesting time because we had to be very innovative with new models, new business models, new gamification models, new monetary models. Uh, and then eventually I, I left that and went to the operator side and then eventually the B2B side. 
And much of what I did was not only strategy and product development and business development, but was also tackling new markets, new business lines, new products, trying to bring in new innovation. And it's constantly been a theme throughout, even on the, from the legal side through the prior work after that in B2C and B2B, working to just do new things inside of big corporations. But we know that in these big gaming corporations, sometimes innovation and tech is hard. So one of the last things we did is we sold the company at the time, NYX, uh, the small team internally sold that to a company called Scientific Games. That was actually shortly after we had bought OpenBet and we created the new, which is now gone, the new SG digital division. And like all good things in the gaming space, then that company broke up not even a few, few years later and most recently. They're now called Light and Wonder and SG and, and many other things as they've been divested into even Endeavor. So after we sold SG, much like you said, Jeffrey, I felt the writing was on the wall for Passpa to come down. And at that time, there was very little VC or angels or generally capital interested in this space, kind of generally speaking. I think Palm has a different experience in Australia because it was a much more vibrant market, but particularly in the US, there wasn't a lot of interest that I would see. So that said, Passport coming down, I think opened up the wave of new ideas and innovation and capital coming to the space and willing to put that capital at risk. And that's why I left to launch my first company and built it from scratch at a time I thought the timing was right called Betworks, which we ended up selling to Bally's and becoming Bally's Interactive. And that just kicked off a wave of companies that I've been involved with either as an investor or through the VC side. And my view on this and kind of what I do is I tend to be very deeply focused in any company I get involved with. And so I think of myself as more of a builder. So I'll get deep in the weeds with the companies I'm involved with. And then I've done so, like I said, either as an investor at the board level or also helping direct venture capital funds as well. But I'll stop there. The most interesting things that I think are going on right now, one is just as you mentioned earlier, I launched another company myself based in Vegas to accelerate startups and early stage companies into the space called Zero Labs, partnering with government as well. So we have public partnership and support that will shortly come after with a venture capital fund, which we'll raise. And I'm sure everyone will, I'll reach out to everyone here to talk about that more at some point. And in terms of companies that I'm most interested in that I'm involved in is I've been involved since day one on building micro markets with Simple Bet and Venue. Got Simple Bet up and running and spent a couple of years assisting them post uh, right up before COVID hit and then introduced to the Invenue team. And so we've been heavily working micro markets in Invenue for about two, two and a half years now. I think that product set's going to be very, very interesting. Awesome. Thank you, Quentin. And last but not least, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Quick round of introductions from yourself, and we'll dive into the meat and potatoes of our conversation today. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Quentin. Thank you, Jeffrey. Similar to Quentin, my family's been in the gambling industry for four generations. Great-grandfather was a bookie in the 1800s. Grandfather was a bookie. My dad was a bookie and then, and then started a professional betting syndicate. And then I was a bookie straight out of university. And, and in Australia, it's probably a little bit different to America. A bookie was a person that came with his bookie bag to the race course and took bets from, from all the people at the races. And so I, I thought I'd be doing it for the rest of my life. Well, at least that's what I hoped. But then the advertising laws changed in Australia and all of the internet bookies started to grow. And you had the likes of William Hill, Bet365, Ladbrokes come into Australia and just to keep our client base, I launched an online betting business called TomWaterhouse.com. And it was differentiated in that it was a person like myself. And we were able to buy up all the advertising properties in Australia, the live sports. And we grew from a hundred customers to a quarter of a million in 18 months. 
but didn't have the scale and technology that these large global operations had. So we sold to William Hill in it. They did a $700 million roll-up of three businesses in Australia. We were a small add-on as part of that, but as part of that transaction, they asked me to be CEO of their Australian business. So I ran that for four years. We ended up selling that business to PokerStars as part of a transaction between BetEasy, William Hill, and then they sold to, to Flutter, which was a sports bet group here in Australia. Basically, I'd been an operator, an on-course bookie and an online bookie and running William Hill. I'd only been in the gambling space, but I had a two-year non-compete that I couldn't be an operator. So I thought, well, where's the edge in the industry? And, and the bit that I thought was under not understood properly was basically the suppliers. It was seemed very relatively that there was a lot of people that could analyze the value of Seasons, MGM, FanDuel, DraftKings, Tabcorp, same lines of the P&L, but it was very hard to understand whether these suppliers how sticky they were, whether if they had one contract, they could get 20 contracts, what the revenue looked like, how they got into the product roadmap. And so we started Waterhouse VC in, in 2019, which was quite good timing with obviously with Pasper in 2018 and really just focused on the suppliers to the gambling industry and, and invest in all different types of businesses from data suppliers to vision suppliers, esports, data providers to voice betting solutions to betting syndicates. Anything that provides a service to the operators. And that's what we focused on for the last four years. And really the most exciting area that we find at the moment are the crypto betting operators. They've got large growth and, and the betting syndicates. It's a $3 trillion market and most people find it have got a house edge against them. And there's a few select groups globally that, that can beat the house. And, and if you've got an edge, whether it's in a sport or in, in racing and you have a, a way to to get on and maintain that edge wall, then it's very, very lucrative. And, and they're the two areas that we're seeing the largest growth in, in the space. Excellent. Well, thank you, guys. I have a long list of things I want to discuss. We'll do our best to get through the list in the next 30 minutes or so. One thing just to get us warmed up here, I'd love to just get a quick uh, pulse check on from you guys is something that's kind of been on my mind over the last little bit coming out of 2023. And look, for a guy with a podcast called the Betting Startups Podcast, I think I'm facing a potential rebrand. And the reason for that is because the industry as it's evolved, particularly since, you know, PASPA was repealed five and a half years ago, the, the edges of the industry are getting a little bit blurred now, right? I mean, obviously we have, you know, traditional betting and the adjacent verticals, iCasino, poker, you know, fantasy, DFS, Pick'em, and then, you know, sort of supplementary things around that. But I'm having a real hard time finding the right language to describe the industry here and all its various components here in 2024. So I just want to get a sense from each of you real quickly. How do you size up and define the industry now? And I guess, where do you draw the edges of it within the context of your investing activities? And Quentin, maybe we can start with you on this one. I actually love this topic because I don't think there's a word that tends to describe it fully. And I think the words we use to tend to describe it change over time, right? For me, I just call it gaming, right? And, and part of the reason is, is, you know, going back to the loitering days, right? So it's like, is it a game of skill? Is it a game of chance? Is it a, is it a social game? And all these things, let me, let me pause for a second. When PASPA went down, I used to say biggest thing that's ever going to happen is the legalization of regulated sports betting in our lifetime and that J curve that's going to come across from that. And then the expansion of that across the world. And I think actually the thing that surprised me the most post PASPA was this exact topic, the, I'm going to make up a new word, the blurification <laughs> of games where it's amorphous, like, are you a social game? Are you a skill game? Are you a chance game? And for me, it's sometimes now having worked with many companies to kind of thread that needle, 
it almost comes down to like when and where does it even matter at some point like if i'm playing a game that's kind of sports betting that's kind of fantasy that's kind of skill you know they just become very amorphous and we're seeing that too now where certain jurisdictions look at what could be a sweepstakes game and then say is that sweepstakes and then everyone looks back and says i don't know i haven't looked at sweepstakes because that's a hundred year old law maybe it's not so i generally just call it gaming at this point and then it's just kind of a question of like where and how are people playing these things you know skip ahead 10 years or five when people are playing games in as virtual and VR and AR, and I don't want to go too far down that road. But as those new and digital environments become available, then where are people playing games? And I can want this for forever. Because look at Florida, right? Because now we know where games are played. They're placed on the server, and the server is placed in tribal territory. Therefore, the game is taking place in tribal territory. And I say that just because it's kind of the jurisdiction that tells you what kind of a game is this. But I'll, I'll stop because I can do this forever. I call it gaming and, and let the cards fall. Cool. Jeffrey, how about yourself? How do you sort of define things these days? It's always very interesting hearing people in America talk about the global gaming industry from an American perspective with all the nuances around sweepstakes and games of skill and DFS and whatnot. I think if you break out beyond that, you look at all the innovations happening around the rest of the world that aren't necessarily constrained, extremely prescriptive American online gaming regulation, you tend to have a lot more nuance. And I think the vernacular of gaming or gambling, betting, punting, staking, et cetera, it's always about entertainment and consumers can choose where to spend their discretionary income and time. You know, I'm not going to necessarily run comparisons against Netflix and Spotify because this is real money gaming, real money gambling. People are staking something for what is ideally an entertaining experience. And we have to provide some value back for that. Uh, and if it's not monetary value, at least it should be entertainment. And I don't think we should ever underestimate the value of the sweat you know, as far as watching a game, participating in a game, waiting for the reels to stop spinning, et cetera. So my preference, if you're going to look for a categorization for all of the activity we're interested in, would say real money gaming. All right. And Tom, step us off here. Yeah, look, same mechanics can go across many different industries and, and obviously see very similar mechanics in gaming, video gaming, like with loot boxes that you see with online gambling and gaming. Our focus is really on the skill part. So we come from a sports betting and racing background. And so it's not that we don't look at businesses that are gaming businesses and, and offer solutions in that part of the industry, but our focus is very much on the skill part and sports betting and racing solutions. Just a question for you, Tom, do you think that has anything to do with the fact that online casino isn't legal in Australia? So you don't see a lot of the innovations happening in the space. Because our fund invests globally, most of our deals are outside of Australia. We see a lot of deal flow in the area, but the point that you made, Jeffrey, is right. My, my background, the family, and also myself in the industry has been very much focused in a non-online gaming sector. So for us, it's just where we feel that we've got an advantage, that we understand this particular bit of the industry. And obviously the industry is so large, we, we really want to just be very narrow in what we're looking at and, and where we think we've got the biggest edge. And, and yeah, so to that point, the fact that Australia hasn't got online gaming legalized is sort of made us focus in the areas that we do have it and, and have obviously got the expertise. All right. Let's spend the next couple of minutes here, guys, looking back on Q4. And at least for me, at you know, following the earlier stages of the industry, from a funding perspective, Q2, Q3 were extremely anemic. There wasn't a heck of a lot going on, at least for deals that were publicly announced. Uh, I have heard anecdotally that there were a number of deals done, though the founders, for various reasons, chose not to actually publicly announce them. So 
you know, whatever the actual case might be, Q4 saw a bit of a return to normal, I guess. We saw some early stage deals announced in Q4. Just to quickly name drop a few. Quinton, you're involved in an venue. I saw a deal, their name, uh, and a strategic investment from the NBA. Uh, Jeffrey, you're involved with Sparkit. Uh, speaking of strategic investment from basketball players, I think Meta World Peace is involved now with Sparkit. Picklebet, an Australian-based operator, announced around. FTN Network, uh, a data provider, and a few others around there. So, you know, there's a bit more activity in Q4. And I guess I'm curious from your guys' perspective, you know, does Q4 market return to normal for early stage deals in this space? And I guess, does this trend line that I see reconcile with the conversations and what you're seeing out there? And Tom, maybe we could start with you on this one. Look, I think we're still a long way off sort of 2021 or 2020 when interest rates are really low. It's very hard. We're seeing businesses to get funded that are not making money. If they're still loss making, especially if they're in a regulated market where they're subscale, it's very, very difficult. It doesn't mean that they can't get some sort of deal done, but it's a long way from where they were and a long way from probably where they want to be. But if you've got a business that's profitable, got a unique edge, playing in a space that doesn't need operational leverage or to be basically the dominant player, then those businesses will get funded easily. And, And we've seen a few of those businesses basically look like they want to raise money and then just say, well, we don't need to. But where every sort of business with an idea and it was going into this this space like it was a few years ago, it's a, it's a long way off still from what we're seeing. Awesome. Jeffrey, what are you seeing out there? Tom made the most important point, which is around interest rates. You know, with very high interest rates, you know, how do you compete in respect to yield and being able to pick the right investments? So it remains a challenging environment until those interest rates start coming down. In the meantime, there also aren't that many sources of capital for early stage online gaming companies. You saw who invested in Picklebet. I mean, that was led by discerning capital from Vegas with drive-by DraftKings behind it. I mean, those are probably two of the more active middle-stage or multi-stage funds uh, in America today. But, you know, you probably only have 10 funds willing to allocate capital towards online gambling businesses and just the same group of 20 angels willing to write checks. So unless you're able to achieve scale, you're really going to struggle for capital. So... I don't see things improving very quickly there. Sorry, the one exception there, of course, is YOLO Group out of Estonia with Tim Heath. I mean, he's willing to write checks for all sorts of really aspirational and intelligent ideas. If somebody's struggling, I would reach out to him. Yeah, I, I would say I agree with both you guys. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing the same thing, either through the company I'm directly invested in or through the, the funds that I'm partnered with. A lot of my time is focused right now on making sure everyone gets through this valley of death, if you will, and everyone gets operational, gets revenue generating. So in some cases, I'm literally diving in and doing product build or commercial deals, pull these companies that we've got capital and across the line to get to the next round of funding. So I get dropped down on a day-to-day operational basis sometimes with quite a few companies, but we're seeing knock on wood that many of the portfolio companies are making it through this 2023 quagmire of restrictions on available capital, and then also two downward pressure on valuations. I had someone tell me just this week that a company should just do a one X multiple on revenue if they want to get money put in. I'm not saying I agree with that, but we're seeing, I think a wide range of downward pressure in terms of people who are willing to put capital and what they're willing to risk for that. Interesting. And I guess uh, another thing coming out of Q4 that I saw is, you know, a few headlines around some early stage companies that are are struggling, right? As you have all identified, I mean, 2023 was very challenging across a number of dimensions. You know, we recently saw Mojo, uh, a new operator based out of New Jersey. They announced some layoffs. 
in the past few weeks, we saw the Gaming Society, they're regrouping right now, and, and there's other various consolidations at the earlier stage. So people are, are, are struggling, or some of the early stage companies are struggling, and it's reasonable to assume, I think, that others out there are struggling right now. So I guess, um, you know, looking for a little bit of maybe uh, uh, wisdom to dispense here, what would each of your guidance or advice be to some of those entrepreneurs that are maybe facing existential crises right now, trying to sort of get through this valley that you mentioned there, Quentin, and maybe we could start with you on this one. Creative thinking. I think strategic review has been the buzz for the last six months. It's a tough road, right? I mean, even companies that are doing well right now, Tom's point, I think are still facing upward roads of raising money. So if you are struggling in that position, I think it's one of the best things you can do is reach out to your network and your advisors, take in as many ideas on how to be strategic with what assets you have and whether there's some way to, in other words, create a multiple upon what you've built to turn it into maybe something else. Because sometimes it's that, potentially, I don't want to overuse a word, but it's potentially that pivot scenario. But at the very least, it's reaching out and trying to collect as many ideas as possible to find out what your options are. Awesome. Jeffrey, over to you. My advice to founders would be don't run out of cash, you know, as basic as that sounds. And if you think that that might occur and you think you're going to struggle to raise the money you need to, then go out there and start talking about M&A. You know, start looking at ways to preserve the value of your IP so you don't end up going through a bankruptcy process. One of the things I remember very well, you know, Jason Robbins, CEO of DraftKings, always made a point of raising money when he didn't need it. And that uh, served the company incredibly well through a number of pivotal crises points. And I think that's the point for founders as well. Yeah, I think it's just a mixture of those three. Obviously, I always say to businesses who are investing in revenue should lead costs. A mixture of what Jeffrey said of always if you think of looking difficult, look at options around M&A, but also what Quinton does, jump into the weeds and find ways to generate revenue. You know, like you've got to, as long as you're keeping lean, there's always ways you can pivot and be nimble enough to, to jump in a new direction and generate revenue. And time is an amazing thing. We've looked at businesses that looked okay on paper. We're like, well, they never execute, but three years in and they've kept lean and they've executed. We're like, actually, those guys have got some stamina and, and maybe they can do it, you know? And, and so it, it gives a lot of credibility if you can stick it out, find a way through tough times to grow. And yeah, you know, I think, I think it's a mixture of, of those elements. All right. Well, let's leave Q4 there in the rear view mirror and let's look ahead here. As I said, we're at the start of the new year here. So love to hear from each of you guys about just, you know, green pastures ahead 2024. You know, what's exciting you right now? What areas are interesting to you? Um, what are you looking at? And I guess, you know, why are these areas interesting to you? And, and Tom, maybe let's have you kick this one off. Yeah. So I mentioned betting syndicates before, they're very hard to win at gambling. And so if you can find an edge where you can win gambling, it's very lucrative. And so what we've sort of two elements, we're invested in a professional tennis betting syndicate and how do we expand that business to grow that out? So at the moment, it's only pre-match. How does it grow to being in play model as well? And then also, how do you take those learnings and, and the ability to win and compute data that the majority of the public and the bookmakers are not able to assess in the same way? And how do you take that to other sports? So whether it's football or snooker or cricket, or even when looking at, at buying a, a racing syndicate, the barriers to entry for these syndicates are, are enormous. So not only have they got to find an edge, but they have to have deep enough liquidity to get the best rebate deals with the global toad operators. And they need to have a, a bankroll that copes with a, a period of negative variance, you know? So firstly, you've got to assess, actually, have they got an edge? Secondly, have they got a big enough bankroll to generate enough turnover to get the best deal terms compared to the large syndicates? 
and, and actually can you withstand a period where the luck goes against you? So we find those very, very interesting. Obviously, my dad's background, growing up around the, these type of people, a lot of our large investors are, run the largest betting syndicates in the world. So we feel we've got an edge in that area. And the other area that we're very much interested in is customer acquisition. It's really changed and, and the scale operators have got such an advantage with that flywheel effect, the fact that they can cope with the higher taxes. And it would have been game over, I think, for a lot of the small operators when traditional media dominated. But how, what are the businesses that can attract large customers? What's their way to get them at low cost for acquisition, get them onto smaller operators or even the bigger operators? Basically, those affiliate style businesses trading, we think relatively cheap. And what are the ones that are doing things differently? And, and they're probably the two areas we're most focused on. I want to jump in on the syndicate stuff. So the syndicate piece is, is fascinating, right? So I've had my experience with some of the syndicates around the world as well, particularly with the Hong Kong Jockey Club and kind of the liquidity markets and racing, right? And it's always been one of those fascinating areas of the race and sports space and finding the liquidity in the pools and being able to access them to beat that edge because it is possible, right? And to be able to do it. It's actually possible, not only on the thing that's fascinating about looking at them, it's not only possible to, to win on horse racing, obviously, because it's not a set, you don't know what the probability of each horse or each team is. It's not only possible to win on, on horse racing and, and sports, but these large operators have taken what they've been able to do in sports and racing to financial markets, FX, and also been able to look at, at the gaming operators and find where let's say live dealer, they're making mistakes. So the same as what they used in when Ed Thorpe wrote the book, Beat the Dealer in 1960 or 61, they take these to the online operators and find that some of the operators, obviously the leading ones around the world have, have found ways to minimize their ability to find an edge against the house, but they're beating a lot of these live dealer operators. And, and it's incredible how the use of data, finding an edge, looking all the time, where is that edge in the market? It's incredible what these syndicates are able to, uh, to achieve. And when you get that edge, well, you're obviously playing into a very large retail market. I guess one last thing to add is, is just pushing on that point is there's a lot larger barrier to entry for these racing syndicates because they obviously can win betting on racing, but the rebates make such a difference because obviously if you've got the best rebate deal because you're turning over the most amount of money, you have a large edge against the other, other syndicates that are not getting the same rebate. Yeah. The, the rails into the liquidity pools are very difficult to get. A long time ago, I launched one of the first legal regulated syndicates in Las Vegas, pre-PASPA and put that business together. And then during COVID launched small syndicate fund in Australia, actually focusing on us sports. And the reason I like that space is because it still comes back to your point, Tom data. And that's why I spent a lot of time with the micro market data product as well. You know, data is the underlying, if you will, ingredient for the manufacturing process for racing sports. And I still call data in the data industry, dirty data, because it's imperfect. There's human intelligence collection. It's not a magical mystery machine where something pulls data directly off the court or the track. We're getting there. We're getting better technology with cameras and et cetera, but it's, it's still very dirty. And then if you watch global betting markets, right, you're seeing Sportsbooks follow sportsbooks, and I'm not explaining this for the industry and the guys on the phone, but you guys know how it works, right? And so there's opportunities to attack, if you will, inefficient markets. So I think data is ripe for disruption, generally as a category, and syndicates definitely being one big piece of that disruption. 
Awesome. So Quinton, just to stick with you here for a minute, thematically for 2024, beyond data, beyond micro markets, anything standing out for you as particularly interesting? I think it's probably more macro. I think we're seeing more M&A cross-border, cross-continent activity. And I think that is not new. We've seen that before, obviously, as Tom's experience in Australia. But I think that is going to be something interesting is I think people are going to go back to fundamentals for businesses that generate revenue and being very specific about if I am going to do new innovation or I'm going to do new product, it's going to be something that's been proven out or something that people highly believe in to take it to market. So no specific thing, but probably more macro. Sure. Jeffrey? I love what Tom said. I am not nearly wealthy enough to invest in syndicates myself, but uh, I love the technology there that uh, many of these syndicates are using and other actors in the industry. And I think really it comes down to artificial intelligence and machine learning. If you can use computer vision to read a live broadcast or a live dealer, whatever the game may be, and be able to run some quantum computing instances to find irregularities or inefficiencies in betting markets and find a way to exploit that or create better data or better odds, I think that can be a really interesting process, both for the betting operators, the books, the casino providers, and the punters themselves in order to you know disrupt that market. I think a lot of these uh, computing tools and processes that are being used right now are being developed quite quietly. You know, you see a lot of very brilliant entrepreneurs who are off others' radar. You know, I look at a guy named Rafe Koistermans, who used to work for Univet and Kindred and then launched Plumby. He's launched the Sportlight Technology Group out of Oxford in the UK, and they're using military-grade LIDAR technology in order to determine velocity of uh, football matches. They've signed up a lot of the Premier League clubs. I have no skin in the game there, but I love what he's building. Uh, and they're looking to expand globally. I know he's going to be raising next year. From an esports perspective, also on data, Grid Esports out of Berlin in Germany, you know, phenomenal business there. They just had Riot Invest. And, you know, I'm interested to see what they end up doing moving forward. But really, I mean, artificial intelligence is going to disrupt everything in the space. I sit on the board of a Copenhagen-based online casino games company called Omnigame. And they are now already using AI to allow them to iterate casino games on far shorter time frame than has been done traditionally. You know, the opportunities around efficiency are massive. Awesome. We have about 10 minutes left, guys. And I want to maybe spend the duration of our time here uh, around a few topics that I, I hope can be actionable insight or advice for founders and entrepreneurs that are at the earlier stage. So to start with here, looking back on 2023, I heard several stories and actually had several conversations with founders of promising startups in the industry and perhaps names that you guys have heard, but startups that folded. And the, the through line for all of these ones is that at the end of the day, it was really bad governance that I think resulted in their demise. So, you know, to me, thematically, that emerges as, as something that maybe often gets overlooked at the startup stage is, is, is governance, right? Can you guys share some advice to founders about implementing sound governance and what a sound governance strategy looks like tangibly at the earlier stage? It's a good question and one that I actually see in real time now as well. I mean, governance comes in a couple different ways, right? It's who are your stakeholders from your shareholders to your board, to your contractors, to your executive management team. I think sometimes understanding those relationships comes later in time as opposed to earlier and how each layer plays their own role within that kind of ecosystem of a, of a new company. If there was a recommendation, it would be if you're doing a startup and you've hired your lawyer to help you frame up your company, take 20, 30, 40 minutes to sit down first and say, like, what is the relationship between all these stakeholders? And then do a bunch of reading on that. 
The second thing I would say is if you're a brand new startup, like early stage, I would keep it as simple and clean as possible and not bring too many people into that fold where you are obligated to take in opinions and advice, as opposed to using an advisory board, which is kind of a, as an independent contracted group of people who are, that you're not obligated to listen to, but they're advisors who are close to you. So I would keep it as simple as possible, but really learn kind of the intricacies of that. And then the third thing is when you do go to raise money, you should spend time reading the paperwork that comes in from people like ourselves and others leading rounds and what does giving up a board seat mean and what does giving up certain management rights mean. I think those would be very important for people to spend more time reading. Sorry, if I can, Quinton, can you recommend three books or a couple, your favorite book for people to read that you think would be relevant? Ah, oh, geez, put me on the spot. You know, that's a really good question. Yeah, my back shelf, I should be able to pull one down. I have the Ed Thorpe book that Tom mentioned up here. It depends, man. I mean, it depends on where you sit, right? If you could read anything on economics, as maybe wonky as that sounds, any book on economics that then stretches into finances is always going to be beneficial. I mean, I don't know, the black swan, the cost of capital, quants, the Kelly capital growth criteria, understanding, I'll say it this way, Jeffrey, understanding the math that undergirds the gaming industry and why and how it works is probably one of the most fundamental things if you're going to come into the gaming space, regardless of where you want to sit on B2B or B2C. Math is important. Quinn, I agree with everything uh, Quinn said. I, I guess bring it to a much narrower outlook is when I think of governance, obviously you've got all those main, main things in terms of legally and all that sort of stuff. But the way that I, I think from founders' point of view, they should conduct themselves, obviously with absolute integrity, proper governance. But if they do that and they tr basically act in that way, it bodes so well for them in the future when they have their next business or then are doing their next funding round. And I always think when, when I talk with the team, the, the founders that are quick to get back on email are always going above and beyond, always doing that little bit extra in terms of whether it's communication or trying to make us understand their business banner or just really all in. It's amazing. We, we completed a deal and I said to the founder of that deal when they sold their business, I said, look, I, next business we find that needs a CEO or a COO, I'd love for you to be part of it. And it was really because of the way that he conducted that business. You know, it, it's dealt with from an integrity point of view to governance, to being everything being in order, to really going above and beyond, whether it's working in a corporate career or having your own business. It's amazing. There's a lot of people watching and you don't realize that they're watching, but there's so many people that have, we've come into contact with and invested in because people have said, oh, I work with that person. They were fantastic. They acted very honorably. They acted with complete integrity. And if you're looking for the long term, always said reputation is everything. It's, it's just the only way to conduct yourself. I, I really agree with Tom. Uh, I mean, I mentioned earlier, there's probably 20 people in the industry who are advisors to all of the startups who are coming up. Uh, and everybody checks references with everybody else, you know, just very quick WhatsApp pings. Hey, I'm looking at this a case, this business, this founder, you know, what are your ideas around that? Jesse, in respect to your question, as far as advice, I mean, it's a bit cliche to say, but if you think the cost of licensing and compliance is high, the cost of non-compliance is much higher. And, you know, startups really need to consider, you know, what the regulatory position is. And of course, you can hire guys like Quinton to create legal opinions for you in 50 states or 100 different countries. But the other thing you can do is just call the regulators up. 
in particular, like the New Jersey Department of Gaming Enforcement, extremely open, commercially sensible, very happy to sit down with you and answer some of your questions. You know, a lot of regulators in different places around the world are, many are not, you know, it's like talking to a brick wall sometimes, but you know, you can talk to the regulators and figure it out, really tap into your uh, network as well. On the book front, I mean, I put Quinton on the spot there. I will make two book recommendations to anybody who's looking to start a company in this space. The first one is Peter Thiel's Zero to One, uh, which is critical reading from my perspective in order to understand value creation. And the other one is Ben Horowitz's The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I mean, getting into this industry is hard. It is really difficult. And you should understand that other people have been on these difficult roads before, and you can learn a lot from their experiences. And I will say that Although I hung up my lawyer hat about a decade ago, I, if anyone reaches out, I have many recommendations. If you want to know who, much like us on the VC side nowadays, there's a group of law firms that are the law firms, and there's like 10 or less who guide startups through the space. And actually, when you asked me on the book question, Jeffrey, zero to one was the first one that kind of came to mind and, you know, kind of ring this out back to the beginning. That's one of the reasons I launched that incubator or accelerator that I call Zero Labs, right? It's about starting at zero and how do you create value, value right? Like how do you drive not just ideas, but how do you take something and convert it and execute upon it that becomes valuable somehow within the industry ecosystem. All right, guys, we're going to finish off here today with one rapid fire question. If you can try and squeeze your response into about 60 seconds or less, we'd appreciate that. Look, 2024 is going to be a crazy year, no matter how you look at it, right? Uh, there, there's some pretty notable elections this year. I think I saw yesterday, eight out of the 10 most populous countries on earth have elections this year. So at a macro level, it's going to be chaotic. From a monetary perspective, we're looking at potential interest rate cuts and, you know, perhaps cheaper capital. So there's a lot of, you know, things flying around. There's going to be a lot of noise out there. Again, advice for founders trying to operate, trying to get from zero to one in this space. What's a single piece of generic or general advice you could give them to help them on their journeys in 2024? Yeah. So look, obviously that, that revenue leading costs is, is pretty important, but I also would just remember that you have huge advantages being a nimble, lean startup that the large corporate behemoths don't. And so play to your advantages. And that's probably similar to at Zero to One book is you've got some advantages, use them, do things differently. Don't try and be a Fangio because Fangio, if you play their game, you're not going to beat them. So do something different, do something that they can't do and, and play in a space that you can do differently, things differently. All right, Jeffrey. Pay attention to the competitive landscape. If you're building another daily fantasy sports product using NFTs, which is an ideation of Rainmakers or Sorare, please don't bother. You know, every one of us get, you know, 10 of these pitches every single week. It's not going to work. You know, come up with something that is really unique and do your research and understand what else is happening there and tap into your network and validate it. Be brilliant and don't run out of cash. All right, Quentin, take us home on this one. All right. Yeah, I agree with everything Tom and Jeffrey just said. I think our minds are on the same plane. My first thought was to say, you have to understand the playing field and don't get stuck on whether the playing field might change on you because it might. And I think 2024's playing field is going to be totally different than 23, which is totally different from 20 through 22. If you have an idea, it could be good, but if you're playing the wrong game or the wrong sport on the wrong field, that becomes a problem, no matter how good the idea. So I would say that constantly be vigilant about understanding, to Jeffrey's point, the, the ecosystem and the landscape. And to Tom's point about how you understand that and then move into revenue generation, being mindful of your costs and dollars on hand, if you will. Definitely, definitely know the game you're playing and where you're playing it. 
All right, guys. Well, that takes us to the finish line here. To close out, if each of you could quickly plug where founders or entrepreneurs can submit their pitches, proposals, decks. If you could quickly plug that, that'd be great. Go alphabetically, Jeffrey, if we start with you. Two sentences via LinkedIn would be ideal. And then include a link to your pitch deck. Uh, I will respond to anybody who sends me a two-sentence uh, pitch. Also, uh, sorry, and that's for me personally, but dreamcraft.vc Great Copenhagen-based VC fund that is always looking for brilliant ideas and founders. All right, Quentin. Yeah, always feel free to reach out to me, like Jeffrey, directly on LinkedIn. Get back when I when I can on and do the time. But also uh, zerolabs.io. That's the accelerator. That's the website. We're accepting apps now. First launch pad actually this month. Seeing great inbounds already and great ideas across the board. But that's an easy spot to find a place to submit. Info. I-N-F-O at waterhousevc.com or just direct message me on LinkedIn. People should also sign up for the monthly newsletter on Tom's website because it's great. Thank you. And betting startups too. Don't forget to like it on Spotify. <laughs> Doing my work for me, Quentin. Guys, I really appreciate the participation today. Thank you so much for bringing your perspectives and insights and sharing it with the audience. Wishing you guys all the best in 2024 and we'll catch up with the audience again next week. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. This episode of the Betting Startups Podcast is presented by Optimove, the number one CRM marketing solution for the iGaming market. If you're traveling to ICE, visit the Optimove stand and mention you listen to this episode to receive an Amazon gift card. Mm-hmm.